Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah chapter 33. We have a great <clears throat> lesson for us tonight. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3. And it's a call to pray. It's the call to pray. Here God is going to judge Judah. It's still in the future when that's going to take place, but he's also going to deliver them in his mercy. This is his promise. And when we go to God and we let him know how we feel, he'll he'll encourage our hearts like he did for Jeremiah. And he wants so much for you to come to him. He does, but he won't force you. He'll allow you to flounder and meander and to go down for the third time. He'll wait till you come to, the, to your end, to the, your, your wit's end. And, you know, if we have any smarts, that's, that's when we'll come. But again, he won't force us to come to him. It's a very dark time for Judah here. But God allows Jeremiah to look ahead and to look down that long, dark tunnel to see if there's any light ahead, if there's any hope. In Jeremiah here in chapter 17, verse 17 of 33, God reaffirms the covenant that he made with David back in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 4, and said he will never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Then in verses 17 through 26, he said, if you can stop day and night from coming so that there won't be any more day and night, that's when my covenant with David will be broken. So obviously that will never happen. So his covenant with David will never be broken. There will never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. A day is coming when God's going to restore the people to the land of Israel and to fellowship with himself. At least seven times in this chapter, we read these words, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Not a lot of people are listening to thus says the Lord. They're listening to thus says, and you can put your own title into that says doctor so-and-so or or senator so-and-so or president so-and-so or whoever it may be but we're not listening to thus says the lord but that phrase is found all through jeremiah and it's full of lessons for us let's begin with verse one in chapter 33 and it begins moreover the word of the lord came to jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the prison, saying. In verse 1, there's three lessons for us to learn. The first lesson is the privilege that we have. The privilege that we have. You say, what privilege? The word of the Lord. To have the word of God. Right here, the Bible. To have the word of God. In our possession is one of the greatest privileges that we can have. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 162, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. It is a treasure. It is priceless. But do you look at it as a great treasure that you own? Paul emphasized the value of having the word of God when he said, What advantage then has the Jew? And he answered by saying, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. They were given the revelation of God. Not a lot of people value the word of God today, even some in the church. 
The church should be full of people anxious, excited to look forward to hear the word of God in church, in Bible study, at home, in their own reading. The world puts down the Bible. They ridicule the Bible. They don't read it. They don't study the scriptures. And they surely don't obey them. And to not value the scriptures the way that they should will result in losing blessings. The second lesson in verse 1 is the person who's given the word of God. In this case, it came to Jeremiah. God's word was revealed to Jeremiah. Why Jeremiah, though? Because he was consecrated, dedicated to God. In John chapter 7, verse 17, John says, If any man wants to do God's will, he will have the needed light to recognize and to know himself, or to know himself, know personally, whether or not the teaching is from God. You see, if we don't obey and do the things that God has told us, he's not going to reveal anything new to us. I mean, why should he? If we don't listen to what he says the first time, why should he tell us anymore? But when we obey God, he teaches us more. If you want God to reveal the great lessons of the word to you, you have to be consecrated to him. Now here in chapter 33, Jeremiah was in prison at this time. But he was still given the word, even in prison. Now King Zedekiah on the other hand, he was in the palace. He was the king. But God didn't reveal the word to him. Why? Because he wasn't consecrated to God. He didn't want to hear the truth of the word of God. He didn't want to hear what God had to say through Jeremiah. The third lesson in in verse 1 is the practicality of the word of God. It says there at the the end of verse uh, 1, saying, saying, each time the word of God came to Jeremiah, the message had to do with the situation at hand in Israel. And the lesson is that the word of God was always helpful. But men don't think it's always helpful or appropriate because they don't want to obey it. But the word is never impractical. The word of God applies to every situation in our life. Look at verse 2 now. Again, it ends in the verse 1 with, the, with your, uh, again, uh, uh, then Jeremiah was in prison and the Lord said, Thus says the Lord who made it. The Lord who formed it, to establish it. The Lord is his name. Now he says it three times. What is meant by it? Because it seems like something is left out here. Because it really doesn't say what he's talking about when he says it. But the the Revised Standard Version follows the Septuagint Version, which is the Greek version of the Bible, And it reads this in verse 2. It says, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it. So that's what he's saying there in verse 2. Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed the earth to establish the earth. That's what the it is referring to. Again, following the Greek version of the Bible. Also, when Jeremiah prayed back in chapter 32, verse 17, he said this, You made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. So the Lord introduces himself in verse 2. And he introduces himself as the maker of heaven and earth, emphasizing his role as the creator. And with it comes his sovereignty over men and nations. And the circumstances 
for his gracious invitation here in verse 3 is the hopeless situation that Jeremiah is in. I'm sorry, that Jerusalem is in. They're experiencing famine and pestilence, and Jeremiah has his own brush with death later on in chapter 38, and soon the coming fall of the city. Look at verse 3 now. He says, Call to me, and I will answer you, and I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. So the whole purpose is that God's going to bring judgment against Jerusalem. He's going to destroy Jerusalem, but he's going to restore them and bring it back. And so the thought is, well, how can God wipe out Jerusalem? And then he's going to restore it and bring back people and, and restore the land. In verse 3, God is basically saying, ask me. Call to me. He says, and I will tell you remarkable secrets that you don't know about things to come. The invitation in verse 3, when he says, call to me, it's given to Jeremiah here. But Jeremiah represents each one of us. When God says, call to me, he's saying that to each one that is a believer. It's an invitation to call upon God. All of God's servants. And we're not just advised to pray. God doesn't say, hey, you know what would be a good idea if you prayed? He didn't say it's a, it's, you know, I'm suggesting, no, that you pray. It's a command to pray. He says, call to me. He didn't say, please. It's a command. You can divide verse 3 into three parts, and that's what we're going to look at tonight. The first part is the command, call to me. The second part is answered prayer. He says, I will answer you. And the third part is, I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Faith is encouraged. So the first part of the command, all right, is call to me. And that is a military command. It's like a military command. It's like a military leader giving you an order. And if you've been in the service, when you received an order, you didn't think twice about it. You did it. Because you know what would happen if you didn't obey the order. God says, call to me. Now think of it. It's a call to come to prayer. In many cities, let's say in the United States, there are shelters that will feed <clears throat> and take care of the poor. So, you know, the word goes out to those who need that care and need those shelters that, hey, man, over down here, downtown, let's say, let's say L.A., downtown L.A., man, there's a shelter and you can get food there, you can get warmed up there when you go in. Now, no one would ever think of making a law saying, hey, you guys, go down there and get warm and get fed. Forcing the poor to come to the shelter and wait at the door to get the help they need. No, that's a no-brainer. <clears throat> you would think automatically that the offer alone for help would be more than enough without, without having to demand it. That the person that's in need would just accept the offer. In other words, hey, man, you don't have to tell me twice, brother. I'm on my way. And yet man needs a command. He needs to be commanded to be good to his own soul because he'd rather starve than come. Spiritually speaking, he'd rather spiritually starve than have God meet his need. When it comes to prayer, it's the same thing. God's people need a command to be merciful to their own soul. And God in his grace, when you hear command, it's not that he's being bossy or ordinary. <clears throat> it's his grace he said, hey, call to me. It's a call from the love of his heart. 
Now, we don't forget to eat, right? We don't forget to bathe or to go to bed or go to work. But we forget to spend time with God in prayer and forget it. Really, it's, we, don't make the point. we don't make it a point. We don't make the time to spend time with God in prayer. Look at all the appointments you have scheduled for the day and the week in your notes in your cell phone or your day planner if you still use one. Look at all the notes that you have, all the things you have to do the week, during the week. Then look at your Bible and see how few notes you've made and the, how few verses you've highlighted, which is an indication of our time spent with God or the time we didn't spend with God. Our appointment books are filled up. Spending hours on, on the things, the daily things of life, and, and, and not necessarily bad things. They, they're good things. But they don't do anything for our soul. And we only spend brief moments with God. The world gets the best of our time, the best of our energy, the, the, the best of our, our money, but our prayer closets get the cobwebs. They get the leftovers of our time. That's why we need to be commanded to pray, something that should be our greatest joy and greatest privilege to do, to meet with our God. The Lord said to Jeremiah here in verse 3, call to me, <clears throat> because he knows that we are more likely not to make him our priority, but rather a last resort to call to him. We need this exhort exhortation, call to me. Because he knows, God knows how quick we are to put other things first and to call on him last, if we call at all. He also understands how bummed out we get when we've messed up. And then Satan comes along and whispers in your ear, hey, why bother praying? How can you hope to overcome this? You'll be going to God for nothing because you're not worthy to be called one of his children, and we're not. But the Bible says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. How can you face him, you might think, after you've sinned against him? And Satan would say, how dare you go to God after you've defiled, you know, uh, the, 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 the altar and the sacrifice that you're bringing? You have no right to take it to God. And that's why it's such a great command that, that, it, that we're commanded to pray. Because during times of heaviness and hard times, we just might give up. But on the other hand, if God commanded me, me, an unclean, defiled, and unworthy thing, as I am, he's commanded me to pray, then I humbly come on my knees to the feet of his grace. So this command, call to me, is written as an everyday instruction that can meet every, every situation that a Christian might fall into. Are you sick and you want to be made well? Call to me because I'm the great physician. Does providence trouble you? That is, does the will of God trouble you? Are you afraid that you might fall? Call to me, God says, because I will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able and I will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Is your, is your marriage floundering? God says, call to me. Are your children backslidden, walking in the world, or on drugs and alcohol? Have they run away? He says, call to me. Is your job on the line? Call to me. Are you without a job? Call to me. 
Are you without it? I mean, are you worried about your retirement? Call to me. Are the little things that trouble you, the little thing, are they little things but yet still painful? Call to me. Is your burden so heavy you feel like it's going to crush you? Call to me. Jesus said, because my burden is light. Are you hard-pressed on every side? Are you perplexed? Are you in despair? Are you persecuted, struck down? Call to me. Whatever you're worried about, call to me, God says. Why? Because he says, my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light to carry. And John said, and God says, I will sustain you if you will call to me because his commandments are not burdensome. The psalmist said in Psalm 55, 22, give your burdens to the Lord and he will take care of you. He will not permit the godly to slip and to fall. In the valley below, on the mountaintop, in the barren desert, in the depths of the ocean, under the billows and the waves, in the furnace, when it's seven times hotter, when you're on the threshold of death, don't ignore the commandment of God to call to me. You see, this is why prayer is mighty. And it will overcome. You will overcome to bring you deliverance. I mean, these are just some of the reasons why the privilege of prayer is also spoken of in Scripture as a duty. We should be so glad that God has given us this command in His Word that it may be a sure thing and a long-lasting thing. You can find many passages where the same teaching is given. This command to pray is insisted upon over and over again. It would be a good spiritual experience, uh, a spiritual exercise for all of us to read and to check out how many times in the Bible we're told to pray. And you know what's interesting? What was the thing that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them? Disciples didn't ask Jesus to teach them how to preach or to teach or to heal. They said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Because they saw something in Jesus when they saw him pray. You will be surprised to find out how many times in the Bible you're told to pray. Here's a few, for example. Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Psalm 62, 8. Your pe he says, you people pour out your heart before him. Isaiah 55, 6, six, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Matthew 7, 7, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. That is a commanded duty to pray. Ask, seek, knock. Faith is, faith is active. It's not a passive attitude. Persistence in prayer. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. That's what Jesus said. Don't give up. Matthew 26, 4, Jesus said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Hebrews 4, 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Colossians 4, 2, draw near to me and he will draw near to you. I'm sorry, James 4, 8, draw near to me and he will draw near to you. Colossians 4, 2, continue earnestly in prayer. Luke 18, 1, it says, men ought always to pray and not lose heart or faint. The inference is if you're losing heart, you're not praying. 
And I'm sure I don't need to keep going because you got the idea. <laughs> a Christian should never worry about, hey, is it the right time to pray? Should I pray? Can I pray? We should never have to ask God, may I be allowed to come into your presence? We have an open invitation. We don't have to pick a number. We don't have to wait in line. When you have so many commands from God, and also God's commands are his enablements, you can come boldly into the throne of heavenly grace. The second part of verse 3 is, the second part of the command is an answer is promised. He said, I will answer you. And we should never for one second believe the terrible and sad thought that God won't answer prayer. Now, he may not answer it the way you want him to, but he will answer your prayer. Because his nature that we saw displayed in, in the incarnate Christ, that is, when Christ came in the flesh, demands it. Because he's revealed himself in the gospel as a God of love, full of grace and truth. So how in the world could he refuse to help us, his own children, who humbly in his appointed way, he says to seek his grace and his favor. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 8 through 11, he says, For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to, how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? On top of all of the promises in the Bible, we can all add our own experience that we've had in prayer that leads us to believe that God will answer prayer. And then the third part of the command of verse 3 is the encouragement to our faith. He says, I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. I mean, what an encouragement to all those who practice the duty of prayer. I mean, this great verse was written while Jeremiah was in prison. But there's a brightness about it and, and there's an upside to it. That never might have came or come to Jeremiah if the Lord hadn't brought him this encouraging word while he was in prison. God's people have always found out the best about their God while they were in the worst conditions. Again, how would we know that God could solve problems if we didn't have them? God is good at all times. But he seems to be at his best when we are at our worst. When we are at the lowest and worst times. Jeremiah was a prophet. In other words, he's a teacher of the word of God. So this applies to every teacher. And every teacher must be a learner in order to teach. So this applies to every learner of the word of God. The best, the best way that a prophet, teacher, and learner can know the truth and the deeper things of God is by waiting on God in prayer. In the ministry, you who are teachers in the children's church, you who are teachers in men's ministry, or teachers in women's ministry, or teachers in the pulpit, or missionaries, 
Whatever ministry you're in, you're all learners in the school of Jesus Christ. So remember that prayer is your best means of study. Pray before you read. Pray before your study. Like the psalmist said, Lord, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your word. Luther often said, to have prayed well is to have studied well. You can push your way through the Lord's work with the power of prayer. You are all learners in the school of Jesus Christ. Again, remember that your prayer is the best means of study. And I believe it was Adam Clark who said, work yourself to death for Christ, then pray yourself to life again. The Christian can expect to find a deeper experience and to know more about the deeper spiritual life by spending a lot of time in prayer. He said, God said, I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. I will show you things. I will answer the questions about things you don't know about. Now, not everybody's spiritual life and growth are alike. We don't all grow at the same pace. We're all different. And we grow differently. But we should be growing. But there is a deeper experience of joy and communion and, and, and a conscience union with Jesus that's way more than the common experience of believers. Charles Spurgeon said, All believers see Christ, but all believers don't put their fingers into the prints of the nails nor put their hand in his side. He said, and as a result, coming to the, as a result, coming to the knowledge of Thomas who said, My Lord and my God. Most Christians, when it comes to the river of experience in Christ, as we see in Ezekiel 47, they're only ankle deep in Jesus. Some are knee deep in their experience with Jesus, and some are chest deep. But not many find it a river to swim in, and the bottom is so deep they can't touch it. Many times their relationship is shallow. Prayer is an encouragement to our faith for the one suffering through a trial. And if he wants, or if he waits on God, if he waits on God in prayer, he'll receive greater deliverances. And many times that's why God makes us wait. Because he says, I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. This is encouragement to the faith of the servant. And if you will wait upon God, and you will be patient in prayer, you have the promise that he will do greater things for you than you know. Because, as it says in Ephesians 3.20, he is able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. We have no idea how much we can be used. We limit ourselves. Because we think, I can't do that. You're right, you can't, I can't. We can't do anything apart from God. And God isn't looking so much for your ability as he is your availability. He says, let me use you. I will do everything else. If you were to look at a jawbone of a donkey laying on the ground, you'd think, what good is that? 
Nobody knows what it could do or what good it would be. But when, when Samson picked up that jawbone, he killed a thousand of God's enemies. When Samson picked that up and put it in his, there was nothing it couldn't do. No one knows what it could do until Samson picked it up. One small stone, remember? Lying in a riverbed. What could, what could that do? But when David picked that little stone up and he put it in his slingshot and he began to aim at the giant Goliath with God's guidance, that stone landed right between Goliath's eyes and took him down. What about five loaves and two fish? That's all they had to feed thousands of people. Five loaves of bread and two fish, not much to feed a crowd of thousands. But when the little boy put those five loaves and two fish into Jesus' hands, those skimpy little resources, Jesus turned it into an abundant feast with leftovers. See, it's not what we do with the little that we have, it's what God does with it. How often do we look at ourselves like that jawbone? What good is that jawbone? Or that smooth stone or those five loaves and those two fish? We look at it as if it's nothing and we think so little. It's so little to deal with so much. What can I do? Nothing on your own. Nothing apart from Christ. But when Jesus through his spirit gets a hold of you, what can't you do? Like Paul, we can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And like Jeremiah said, hey, is anything too hard for the Lord? No. Matthew Henry said, many of our can'ts are only the language of idleness which magnifies every difficulty and danger. But here's the thing too, don't depend on prayer without any effort. James said, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Fervent prayer means I must pray fervently, not giving up. Avail, avails much means it produces wonderful results. So fervent prayer, that is fervently praying, not giving up, it produces wonderful results. But I must also pray according to the will of God, 1 John 5, 5, 14. And I must ask in Christ's name, John 15, 16. For example, a little girl's answer, a little girl's answers to her lessons in school were always better than all the other kids. So one of the other students asked her, why was that? Why is that? And she said, well, I pray and I, I ask God to help me learn my lesson. The other student thought, well, hey, I'm going to do that too. So the next morning, the other student stands up. She gives her answer to the lesson, and she was embarrassed because she didn't know anything. So she complained to the student who prayed, and she said, hey, look, I asked God to help me learn my lesson, but I didn't learn a thing, so why should I pray? The girl asked her, did you sit down and try to learn it? She said, no, I never even opened the book. 
Well, the other girl said, well, I asked God to help me learn my lesson, but then I sat down to it studiously, and I kept at it until I knew it well, and I learned it easily because my earnest desire, which I had expressed to God, was, Lord, help me to be diligent in trying to do my duty. Now, let's apply that to maybe a situation in our lives. It's the same thing with some people who go to prayer meetings and pray and then go home and don't do anything, hoping God's work will just continue on its own. People who pray, oh, Lord, save my coworker," But they never witness to him. Oh, Lord, please help me find a job. But they never go looking. They never put out any resumes. These are people who seem to be very prayerful, but they want God to do everything. They want God to do what they can do themselves, so God does nothing for them at all. God's not going to do anything that we can do. He does, what, he does what we can't do. And then lastly, this, promising, um, this promise is comforting to those who are intercessors, those who are prayers, prayer warriors. You who are calling on God to save your children or your spouse to bless your neighbors, your marriage can take comfort from this. I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Isaiah 30, verse 18. The Lord God is waiting to show how kind he is and to have pity on you. The Lord always does right. He blesses those who trust him. The Lord God waits to show you how kind he is. Why? Because he makes you wait because he wants to give you something gracious. Too often, we're in a hurry and we settle for much less than what God wants to do through us. Yet in tough situations, we start to adjust or change our belief in God. We lower our expectations of what God will do. It's one thing to believe God that he can do a miracle in the Bible. We look at it and go, oh, that is so cool. Look, God did this miracle in the Bible, or, or he did this a thousand years ago, or he's done it in somebody else's life. But to believe with all of your heart that God can do anything he chooses to do in our lives, well, that's another story. It happens to everybody else, but not me. When Almighty God speaks to us, What we do next proves what we believe about him. No matter what we say, it's not what we say, it's what we do that proves proves what we believe about him. Again, prayer meetings are the least attended function, if you will, in the church. If we have a potluck dinner, hey, everybody shows up. But say, hey, we're going to have a prayer meeting tonight. We're going to seek God for things. Very few come. In closing, God, remember, God revealed his plan to Moses. God told Moses how he was going to put together the great exodus, how he was going to get the people to leave Egypt. But he wanted to use Moses to do it. Moses, I want to use you to, get, to lead the people out of Egypt. But Moses began to argue with God. Oh, not me, Lord. I, no, I, I can't do that. Moses was so overwhelmed by what God told him, he started making excuses for why he couldn't do it. 
Moses gladly acknowledged that he believed in God's power. Lord, I believe in who you are. I believe in your power. I believe you can do that, but just not with me. He just didn't believe that God could use his life to do his miraculous work. So Moses argued with God, and that limited his ministry for the rest of his life because he got Aaron to come in and help him. And Aaron made it harder for him. God wanted to use Moses. God wanted to be his helper. But Moses, no, no, give me Aaron, my brother, to help me. Who was the one who got them to, to, who built the golden calf and got them to, to you know, defile you know, God and, and, and have the orgies down below when Moses was up speaking to God, his brother Aaron? Do you have the feeling that God wants to do a lot more through your life than what you're experiencing right now? It took me 16 years to finally get that. 16 years. When on my 40th birthday, I felt, man, I wish I was 40 again, but uh, I used to think, man, I'm, I'm 40. I got probably more years behind me than I have ahead of me. And when I, when I stand before, I just don't want to say, I just want to know, no, I don't want to know that I just went to church. What did I do while I was here? How did I serve him? And that's why I said, Lord, I want to do more. And I kind of heard, well, quit saying no to me. <laughs> because there were a lot of opportunities I had, but oh, not right now. I, I got something planned for this weekend. I, I get an opportunity. Well, no, you know, I'm, I, I kept saying no and made it, Lord, when it's a more convenient time. No. So I made a promise. Lord, I'm not going to say no to you anymore. And when you quit saying no, quit saying no to God, because again, don't, remember, it's God that's going to do the work. He just needs a body. He just needs somebody who's available. When you quit saying no, then be ready to respond by faith and obedience to what he tells you. And when you do, hold on for the experience of your life. And like I said, it, if I was saying no, I, I wouldn't be up here today. And, and for Kathy and I, it's been, it's been the, the ride of our life. Not easy, but what a blessing. And so, and he wants to do that with each one that's in this room. Pray about, well, we shouldn't pray, but just quit saying no to God. <laughs> and hold on. Father, we thank you so much for this awesome three verses, Lord. The call to pray. The promise to answer. And the encouragement to our faith. I will show you great and mighty things that you do not know. Father, help us to be True believers, God, in the sense that I won't say no to you anymore. No, to Lord, I, I don't want to. I don't want to say no to you anymore, God. I want to be open to you. I don't. Wanna, I want to be used by you. I want to know that the, on the day I stand before you, 
that I was that I was in in his service. And so, Father, I pray that we would just open up to you, Lord. That we would be all that you've called us to be, God. But first, God, that we would be your child. The Father, that we would desire to receive you as our Lord and our Savior. By confessing our sins to you, by acknowledging I am a sinner. And for God to cleanse and wash me of those sins and to come into my life. And help me to be born anew, born again. Fill me with your spirit, Lord. And lead me, guide me all the days of my life. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Sunday morning, 2 Corinthians.